I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Purple People of the Lafayette Morehouse. A seemingly quiet community that has been living in Northern California since 1968 and teaching classes like the fundamentals of sensuality and expansion of sexual potential, or simply just Shazam. This cult was led by a man named Victor Barranco. He was a charismatic leader who, once upon a time, used to be a used car salesman and peddled phony jewelry, and was even rumored to make collections for the mob. One, drinking the purple Kool-Aid. How do we define a cult? Usually the term describes a social group that is defined by its practices of unusual religious, spiritual, or philosophical beliefs. It's also common that it revolves around a single personality, object, or goal. Cult, totalist type, a group or movement exhibiting a great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, idea, or thing, or employing unethical manipulative techniques of persuasion and control. Ergo, isolation from former friends and family, use of special methods to heighten suggestibility and subservience, powerful group pressures, information management, suspension of individuality or critical judgment, promotion of total dependency on the group, and fear of leaving it, designed to advance the goals of the group's leader to the actual or possible detriment of the members, their families, and the community. The concept of a cult as a sociological classification, however, was introduced in 1932 by American sociologist Howard P. Becker as an expansion of German theologian Ernst Trolch's church sect typology. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> that is a tongue twister and a half. German theologian Ernst Trolch's church sect te- oh fuck German theologian Ernst German theologian Ernst Trolch's church sect typology you might as it's you know what it feels like it's like the verbal equivalent of like going down slope like a ski slope you know you're like Ernst Trolch's church sect typology <laughs> You know what that, you know, that makes me like, you know how in Men in Black, when the cockroach guy is like, water with sugar in it. Sugar, water. That's, uh, that's what it makes me do. It like makes my chin slam into my clavicle trying to say, German theologian urged Trolch church sect typology. Trolch's aim was to distinguish between the three main types of religious behavior, churchly, sectarian, and mystical. In a later study, Robin's 1988 review of recent sociological contributions to the study of cults identifies four definitional perspectives. One, cults as dangerous authoritarian groups. Two, cults as culturally innovative or transcultural groups. Three, cults as loosely structured proto-religions. And four, Stark and Bainbridge's 1985 subtopology that distinguishes among audience cults. Members seek to receive information, for example, through a lecture or tape series. Client cults, Members seek some specific benefit, for example, psychotherapy, spiritual guidance, etc. These classifications have a much broader range than previously thought, and over time, cults have evolved and become even more segregated into smaller groups and classifications. Doomsday, destructive, political, polygamist, racist, and terrorist. Look, all I gotta say is, like, um, I don't know that the polygamist stuff and, like, Om Shinrikyo are on the same level. You know what I mean? Like, it's good we have these classifications. Now, are polygamous cults and religious cults that, like, terrorize women and bind them to men objectively evil and horrible? Yes. I don't know that it's the same as, like, mass-producing tanks and trying to start nuclear Armageddon and committing terrorist acts where they're murdering thousands of people in broad daylight. Yeah, we gotta have we gotta have some nuance to these cult classifications. And also, like, yeah, like, you know, obviously the, you know, cult, cults, because the interesting thing is, is, like, for instance, Jonestown originally... That cult started out as an anti-racist social justice group. So obviously, like something that is like on paper good can turn into, you know, not even it's not a mass suicide. It's a mass murder. Yeah. Isn't it weird how that stuff kind of gets, you know, perverted and 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 kind of uh, eats its own tail at a certain point? Like, I find that a lot with like a bunch of my former 
punk friends from uh, uh, Arizona, you know, because there was a, you know, sizable punk scene there or whatever. And I knew a bunch of kids in that scene and I was in that scene for a minute. And the like the weird pipeline from punk or horror punk or hardcore kid who like has a standard bearer and a code of morals and like believes in trying to do the right thing. The the pipeline from that to like Republican cop is is weird. It just happens where like as people get older because they have that identity of like. I understand how the world works. They become really rigid and then that they become so liberal that they come back around to conservative, you know, like it's really strange or even like, you know, in in the straight edge community with like Friends Stand United, like if anybody doesn't know Friends Stand United was like a literal gang of former straight edge kids who would like go around and like beat up drug dealers and steal their drugs and like it's so weird it's so and then they turn into like they didn't do some nice things they did some really bad stuff uh which is so strange of just like it starts out as yeah i don't know if drinking is for me and then it gets solidified into like a moral code and identity and then it becomes not only is it not for me but it shouldn't be for you and then it's like it shouldn't be for anybody let's go out here and fucking like murder these drug dealers like this is so weird yeah or like or like uh you know like militant atheism where like when i was in high school there was this guy named david and he was dude i'm right here yeah there was a, <laughs> back when you went by david uh you you had your midlife crisis and started going by dave way early yeah, yeah. When I had my when I had my fifteen year old crisis or whatever, and I was like, "Nope, it's Davy Boy now." Yeah, my 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 dad had his midlife crisis and started going by Dave when in his like mid to late forties. You did it at fifteen. I mean, look, man. It, we all we all look. If the worst that's had thing to happen to your dad is he was like, "Yeah, I don't really like this name." Like, all right, whatever. Go by a different name. Who cares? I, I'll just just for the record, when you switch to going by David from Andrew, that's gonna be hard for me going to be hard for me to to process that but you know what i accept you and i'm going to acknowledge and respect that you want to be called david you mean spavid spavid right spavid sorry spavid indeed it's gonna to happen tomorrow uh tomorrow next week's episode i'm spavid spice uh the yeah there's this, there was this there was this guy that was totally you in high school he was an older guy and he was uh the boyfriend for a while he was the boyfriend of my friend's older sister and they uh but ultimately he was like this guy and my my uh everybody thought he was so cool and he was like i was when i was like a freshman he was like a senior or something like that and he was like this particular style of militant atheist where he would like just like carry around like a copy of the bible and like rip pages out of it and then like he would just like go into churches and try to debate the pastor during uh, a uh, uh, whatever, what are, ceremonies, whatever the fuck, the, what, are, what are those called? He would just go in there and like try to debate them during a sermon. And everyone thought that was like the coolest thing ever. And I was just like, that's that's annoying. Like Sunday morning, like Sunday morning. Yeah, he was just he would just like he would just like go in there and try to debate them. He was just like, and he was like, that was his whole brand was that he was just like a fucking I'm a fucking atheist. Prove to me that God exists. And like, I don't believe in God. I I am an atheist or whatever agnostic or whatever. I've never really thought thought about it that thoroughly. All I know is I don't believe in God. But I that's annoying to me. Like that's not cool. That's that's a ob, that's obnoxious. It's really cringy. Yeah. Like, leave these poor people alone. They're just trying to get through the day. It works for them. Who gives a shit? Yeah, nobody asked you to do that. Nobody needs you to do that. You're not accomplishing anything other than just, like, stroking your own weird ego. Making, making you know, making a bunch of uh, poor people just uncomfortable for 20 minutes as you go, like, prove to me. Prove. And also, I think that there's, like, similarly, there's a pipeline of, like, people... I think there's a lot of like really hardcore atheists in like high school who grow up and they just turn into like ultra religious, like, like, like fundamentalist people because it's like, it's not about the actual belief. It's about this weird, like superiority complex over other people, which I think was to tie it back was that was the, the, the thing with Jonestown was that it wasn't the whole thing was like, because the thing about Jim Jones is like, he started like doing this weird thing as he got, crazier and crazier and more drunk with power and more like in this idea of being this God, 
he started doing this weird minstrel act where I don't know if you've heard recordings of Jim Jones, but the way he would talk later on is like he was like trying to talk like some like jazz 1930s person. He's like doing Amos and Andy. Yeah, I, I don't want to I don't want to like try to recreate it. But like if you listen to recordings as he got like crazier, he started doing this more and more of this weird minstrel performance. But the reason for it is because it wasn't that they genuinely had some belief in like solving racial tensions or being about anti-racism or whatever. It's that he just had like a God complex that he could be like the white savior, which clearly was tied to some weird like Quentin Tarantino. I wish I was black thing. And as he got crazier, the veneer of like, I'm just running an anti-racist organization slipped away and then it just became like, oh, you're just like a fucking egomaniacal maniac who just has this weird fixation on a white savior trope. He's the reverse Manson because Manson was the opposite, right? You know, he was like weird white savior in the supremacist way. Yeah, he was su- super white supremacist and just his whole the whole cult was pre was the whole cult was surrounded by the idea that there was going to be a race war and that like black people were going to rise up and kill white people. So they had to like build a stronghold so that they could survive or something. Because these have high implications of psychological manipulation, it has been taught that thought reform was an implication of a cult. However, as many similarities as they might have, this is not always the case and we must look at the destructive nature that the group may cause. What is the impact of its members in society? It seems nowadays that you can't escape the salacious headlines online or the almost daily Netflix, Max, or Hulu docs about sex cults gone awry. In HBO's Nexium documentary, The Vow, a seemingly sadder and wiser former member says, Nobody joins a cult. Nobody. They join a good thing. And then they realize they were fucked. Keith Rainier, the leader of Nexium, told the women that the privileges of their gender had weakened them, turned them into prideful, quote, princesses, and that in order to be freed from the prison of their mewling femininity, they needed to submit to a program of discipline and suffering. Yeah, but to be fair, like, that's what I that's what I tell you. It's true. And it works. Yeah, I mean, it's... Your life is better. Tell me tell me I'm wrong. Is this where I'm supposed to start singing the hymns of the Church of Spapa Spicy? Because I know them. Hand Dave's Tale. <laughs> it's just a shot for shot remake, but with my face deep faked onto everyone's head. <laughs> no one wants this. Handmaid's Tale cross being John Malkovich. Victor Barranco, much like Keith Rainier, had a similar style according to an article from Rolling Stone. This was a first-hand account of reporter Robin Green, who spent some time taking classes at the Lafayette Moore House in 1971. Victor Barranco was born to Wilbert Barranco, a black father, and a Jewish mother in 1934. His parents were well-known musicians in Oakland, California. Their marriage lasted 51 years, but according to Victor, it was completely miserable and they were divorced twice. In Victor's younger years, he said he was a common, quote, street thug. In his own words from Rolling Stone, A hustler is what I was. Do you guys know what a hustler is? Well, a hustler is what I was. Just you you saying this, but just reading it like that. (laughs) A hustler is what I was. Do you guys know what a hustler is? Boy, howdy was I one. I'm I'm not about to sit over here and do some Jim Jones weird Ebonics no, bullshit. No, of, co- of course, of course. But the alternative is hilarious. <laughs> it's like the Pimp My Ride episode. Yeah, yeah, totally. These pimp mobiles. I pushed phony rings and watches, the whole thing. Good looking jewelry that wasn't worth anything. Like I'd pretend to be a truck driver with an overload of goods. Or I had an engagement ring set and my girl decided to marry somebody else. And I'd be crying the blues in a bar after the time when the jewelry stores were closed, of course. I owned a store that dealt with sailors on Mason Street, selling with diamond engagement sets, and they didn't even know a girl. They were 17 from Iowa or someplace and had never seen big water before. I wouldn't even give them a diamond. It was such an incredible hustle. We'd guarantee the thing was genuine, but what it was, was a chip. A 10-point chip in a sparkle setting. And it looked big. It was worth maybe $8. The box that the ring was in cost me a buck. I made a lot of money. But her, Susie, his first wife, father was right. I was a bum. And so I decided to go straight. All right, we gotta gotta take a look at this guy. So there aren't actually any pictures in this script, but we gotta take a look at this guy here. So so this is Victor Barranco. Oh my God. Victor Barranco looks like... (laughs) Looks like a cross between Ben Stiller in... What the fuck is the name of that movie? 
Victor Barranco looks like a cross between Ben Stiller in The Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums. He does. He, he really does. The photo we're looking at here, he's, he's sitting crisscross applesauce in some blankets, and he's wearing an orange tracksuit. He's uh, a little heavy set. He's got a mustache, bushy eyebrows, and uh, black hair. Victor Barranco looks like he owned a massive chain of fast food pizzerias in the Midwest throughout the 70s and 80s. And his one little touch that he insisted on is every pie, no matter what it was, no matter what you ordered, every pie had a single sliced olive in the center. And he and he freaked out if he ever caught anybody not putting the single sliced olive in the center. And every in every location throughout the Midwest, people always were just like, I don't want the olive on them. That's weird. Like I got I, I got pineapple on like it doesn't go with it at all. And they'd be like, we have to do it. Like literally, if we don't put the olive there, he like thinks that it's this like trademark touch and like it's what defines the restaurant. If we, if we don't put it on there, he'll literally fire us. And they're just like, okay, fine. Victor Barranco looks like the type of guy that owns a restaurant and comes into work every day and tries to make a catchphrase happen. You know, he walks in and he's like, hey, everybody. And everyone just kind of goes, hey. And he's like, fuck. And then he comes in the next day and he's like, how you doing? And everyone's like, hey. He's like, god damn it. The next day he's like, it's purple season. <laughs> what does that mean, Victor? I don't know. I just thought it'd be something fun to say. What do you think? It's my new catchphrase. It's purple season. We're going to rebrand the restaurant to be purple people eaters. Thoughts? Uh, it's better than the olive idea. Yeah, he uh, he looks like Victor Barranco looks like a cross between Mario from Super Mario Brothers and oh, no, you know what he looks like? Victor Barranco looks like if Ron Jeremy was cast to play a retired Mario from the Super Mario's uh, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, he's he's like the Mario from like a weird 70s porn Mario. Well, he looks exactly the way I thought he would look. That's all I got. That's all I got to say. From there, he got a job as a manager of a drive in in Berkeley, his hometown. It paid the magnificent sum of seventy five dollars a week. I was used to tipping a hundred. I did that for a while. And then I said, hey, this is ridiculous. I had a few mafia connections, and I went to one of those guys and said, hey, they got me washing dishes. And Jerry said, you can come work for me. He got me a job that paid two bills a week, and every two months, you go get your two grand bonus. Susie had begun to feel the pinch of making $75 a week. Dig? She was softening up. Although, it doesn't make any sense that he has, like, a New York accent, because he's from Oakland, California. <laughs> I know it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> he had become a bookie and after that a washing machine salesman. He continues on basically to talk about how much of a renaissance man he is. I've done everything there is to do. I've been a maitre d' in a fine restaurant. Used to be a used car salesman. I've won cruises for being a top refrigerator salesman. And I've been a peddler of phony jewelry. I've flown people to Las Vegas to gamble. Some of the great people in the world, Mort Stahl, Francis Fay, Christine Jorgensen, they know, me, they know me by name. I have a wonderful wife, two perfect children, and a Thunderbird. I've traveled to Los Angeles, Reno, Hawaii, Mexico, and now I've solved the biggest logic problem of all. Yeah, there's, there's that's another interesting thing. This, I feel like there's like, just based on so many cult stories or cult leader stories of how they got to where they got and like the stuff that they did and the fact that they're all kind of these like sort of raconteur people who did a bunch of odd jobs and... <clears throat> they made money by just going around just kind of, you know, schmoozing and doing jobs like salesmen. There, there's like an interesting pipeline there as well where you have these people who have this sort of like natural gift of gab already. So they're already just charismatic or just good at talking and convincing people to do stuff. They naturally acquiesce into jobs that play to their strengths. So they'll do door-to-door salesman jobs and used car salesman jobs and uh, you know, s just sales in general, they start to learn techniques for how to do those jobs more effectively, uh, whether it's like on the job experience, or maybe they work with a mentor who kind of teaches them some sales techniques, or they're, you know, the company that they're working for has like manuals and techniques to use. And then they start to like, think about that. And they're just like, 
hmm, I wonder if I could use these techniques to like say, like instead of like getting some 40-year-old housewife to buy me, to buy a refrigerator, instead get like some girl to like have sex with me. And then it like, and then it escalates. And like, I wonder if like, okay, like that worked, definitely worked. I wonder, uh, and one girl, that's fine. That's good. All good. But what if I could get like 50 girls to have sex with me at the same time? And then it just, and then it becomes a cult. I mean, you're, you're not wrong, bro. That's definitely where it starts. Like it, it a hundred percent, all of these fucking situations, even Amshin Rikyo, where he's like this blind guy who fakes a religious awakening and pretends to go, you know, across the world to seek spiritual enlightenment at the root core of that, he's just like, but what if I, like, fucked more? Yep. It's all cults. The only thing I don't get about Nexium is that Keith Rainier guy, he's, like, not charismatic. And the stuff he says doesn't make any sense. I don't, how did he, I don't know how he did that. I mean, I think at a certain point, personal confidence is just, like, the weird, it's just a weird thing. Like, even if you have, like, a charisma level of zero, if you just say it confidently enough... People are like, oh, yeah, okay. Or a certain percentage of people are just like, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, the 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 Allison Max of the world, or is that her name? Yeah. The Allison Max of the world will just, like, fucking crumble to pieces and start weeping and then just throw away their entire lives. The one true Jimmy Olsen. Now she's just in a fucking, she's in prison for being in a sex cult. In 1968, he opened the first Moore House in Oakland, buying up some very run-down, cheap Victorian houses and started up the Institute of Human Abilities, Inc., while he and his first wife and children lived in a very nice house in Lafayette, he would populate these new houses with young hippies, most of whom had just gotten into town and had nowhere else to go. They would fix up these dilapidated houses for room and board, so his investments would appreciate and he didn't have to lift a finger. He was just a landlord, he was just a fucking real estate mogul. By 1971, there were 16 houses owned by the Morehouse community, six on a dead-end street in Oakland alone, 10 more in Lafayette, San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles, Hawaii, and four more in the works. Over 160 residents were now living in these houses and all paying 200 a month rent to Victor. 200 a month, fuck, I'll move in. I'm, I'm down, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the cult. In today's money, that is about 1,471. I mean, honestly, I'm still in. Even adjusted for inflation, I'm in. They all still have to fix the houses for free, but in return, receive love and affection, and of course, tons of parties. In a YouTube documentary titled Finding More, the women of Morehouse would have to purchase maid uniforms to keep up perfectly manicured nails to serve Victor and the higher-ups. This is also echoed by Mary, another Morehouse resident. Our main function is service. We teach service in the kitchen, living room, and bedroom. People serve Victor totally. He has a chauffeur, everyone waits on him. He gets anything he wants. A lot of the traditional Morehouse things that I didn't like doing anyway, like being a maid. And see, it used to be when Vic lived there that the maids serve him and take care of the powers that be. We had to have just the right uniform and get that, pay for that ourselves, get it made, you know, and there were rules, you know, how you're supposed to manicure your nails and, you know, all this stuff. No one wants to wear it. No one! You only have to be some pretty far in to become a maid, actually the politics um, at Lafayette, but here we don't do that. that. Those talking head segments are amazing. One of the women was just in a garden holding a giant thing of flowers saying, the one who was like, no one wants to do that. Like, look, I agree. But also it's so funny that she was just like, it'll be quirkier and give you a better perspective if I'm gardening actively while we're interviewing for this documentary. <laughs> Yeah, when I when I when I relive the time that I willingly allowed myself to become some random dude's maid for no reason, I want to I want to just spice it up a little bit. I want to I want to show a little bit of my tude, you know. Yeah, I want to be pruning, you know. I want, I want people to see another side of me that isn't a uh, a, a a brainwashed cult victim that just became a maid. But yeah, that, I mean ser seriously though, I mean I, here's the thing, I. I I, well, Andrew did this and I read it in his journals, but he talked to, he talked to, a, he talked to several cult therapists and experts and quote unquote deprogrammers. They don't really like that term. Deprogramming is seen as a, as a negative thing in like the, in the uh, profession, but I don't, whatever, whatever you call it. I talked, they, they he talked to a lot of them. 
And I think the biggest takeaway that we got from the QAnon series was that like anybody can fall into these things. You aren't like superior and like invulnerable to being taken in by cult-like thinking and pushed to a situation where you uh, buy into something and allow yourself to be abused and overtaken in this way. Um, and a lot of it has to do with like financial instability and desperation and just being in like a really difficult space in your life, you know, for a variety of reasons. But that all being said, I just, I can't imagine at the point where someone's like, you got to put on this maid uniform. I can't imagine going with that. Like, I can't imagine being like, yeah, like, it's just like the sunk cost fallacy of like, I've gone this far. Like, I can't imagine being like, yep, put on the maid uniform. I mean, that's like that's like not even that hard for these situations. Like, wasn't the Manson cult the initiation rit ritual was you had to give Charlie fellatio like that's You're not even in the cult yet. And he's just whipping it out. Yeah, but that's free love, man. I don't know. Have you seen Charlie Manson? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't do that either. I'm not I'm not arguing with you. That's some 99 cent store free love, bro. <laughs> I don't think I need that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the type of free where you're like, why is this free? I don't think I want this. I'd, ra I'd rather pay money for it. That free love is laced with aspartame, like for sure. It's like when someone, it's like someone's giving something away for free and you're like, it's because it's because nobody's buying this, right? You're just trying to you're just trying to get rid of these. This community also did a lot of outreach work at the time. They set up a nonprofit organization called TOTA, Turn On to America, to help collect government funds for housing alcoholics, non-placeable foster children, and parolees. At the same time, they were also charging $45 for about 70 different weekly classes, which today is about $331. So that estimates to about $1.2 million a year in 2022 money. Though today at the Morehouse, they are charging even more for courses, but we will circle back to that in a bit. Baranco had found his honeypot and wasn't just in sexual enlightenment. He was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying, abusive people exploiter. Bronco called his new students Marks, which is an odd name for someone you are evaluating and teaching. It definitely sounds more like someone you're about to swindle. One tactic used in many cults is breaking or, in this group, hexing. When you hex someone, you were to bring them down, and then when they're ready, you build them back up again at your leisure. The Morehouse also offers courses on hexing. Here is an excerpt from Aquarius Magazine, which offered a description of all of their courses. Hexing is a conceptual game which every human being is playing every time he opens his mouth, but very few people are aware of the game. This weekend course will provide you with the history, technique, structure, and applications of hexing. The extent to which one can control his hexing is the extent to which one controls his universe. The Morehouse still offers this course today, though they've updated their lingo a bit and even have a strange young man trying to explain it to you in a video on their website. This is a really awesome course and one of my personal favorites. Now, when someone's hexed, they're less effective. And when someone's blessed, they're more effective. So these are really powerful tools. This course will give you the opportunity to understand how hexing and blessing work and how to use your power more deliberately. If you examine hexing, you'll discover what's going on, you'll learn to create the effect you're looking for, and you'll have a lot more fun with your communications. When we called this course the blessing course, nobody took it. Now that's a hex. <laughs> Negative charisma. Yeah, I'm not hexed. I am I'm not, not hexed. I'm not hexed at all. This class is, well, here, do you want to read this description of the class? Hexing is a conceptual game that people play unconsciously all the time to control and manipulate others' emotional responses. To the extent that you can control hexing, you can control your universe. The course shows you how to hex and bless deliberately in your communications to create desired effects. Through structured games, you can learn the power dynamics of social groups and how best to profit from any position. The history, technique, structure, and application of hexing in various contexts are also examined. Even though its origins are in the ancient ritual practices, it's commonly misunderstood as an obsolete mythology. Hexing is widely practiced in modern society in such areas as advertising, politics, flirtation, medicine, and religion. $525. Yeah, this class costs $525. It's on Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Well, it's from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., which is like, that's your, that's your whole weekend. And there's a there is a three hour break at least because that's like that's a whole work shift like that's not a fucking class 
that's a day of work. Uh, but at least you get a three-hour break, I guess, from one to three. Um, the a prerequisite for this class is basic sensuality. You got you got to be you got to be sensual to take this class. You got to take the basic sensuality class, uh, which cost four hundred twenty-five, so four hundred seventy-five dollars. And this one actually doesn't have the times for some reason. But let, let, let's just look at this sensuality video. I'm Sugar. I'm Boris. We're from Lafayette Morehouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was not expecting that energy. <laughs> Sugar and Boris. Sugar and Boris. Yes. I was not expecting that. These these people, like this guy, this other guy, just a black hole of charisma. I would never take a class from him. I would never listen to him. These guys, I'm ready to fuck i'm 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 down i want to take a glass with sugar and boris right now i'm sugar i'm boris we're from lafayette morehouse and we want to talk about enjoying what you have yeah because um it's an overlooked skill set you know in our culture or in our society um we get a lot of messaging that where it's at is an acquisition really gratification comes from the endorsement of what is comes from the like reveling in what you have that's how you become gratified <laughs> so if if nothing ever does that for you then there's no way to get there however if you are really gratified by what you've got then you go after something you want that is a really fun game so it's not about not getting things you want it's fun to get things you want but it's kind of meaningless unless you can also enjoy what you've got if you put those two things together if you enjoy what you've got and then you reach for more that's how to have everything you ever wanted out of life i is it is it is it wrong for me to be like you know that kind of makes sense on one level and then on another level it's like please never speak to me again yeah it's like simultaneously very simple it's just like appreciate what you have like like that's not complicated but also the way that they said it i was doing that meme of that like woman where she has all the math equations around her head you know i was doing that where i was like if you have what you got and you appreciate what you got then you can have what you want, but then you got to have what you got. I was like, I was like lost in this like incredibly basic, like, like preschool lesson about like appreciating what you have, (laughs) which I guess you got, that's what you got to do. If you want to, if you want to peddle bullshit, you got to like make something incredibly simple, sound incredibly complicated. And like, you have to, you're the only one that understands it. You have to like teach it to these people. Also, I'm struck by just how like kind of normal all those people look and seem, but they're actually they're just like fucking they're like lieutenants in a weird brainwashing organization to like fleece people of money. Well, that's what I was curious when they when Sugar and Boris first popped on the screen. I'm like, are these people really a part of this or are they like are they like actors paid to be here? Like what what is what is their situation? No, Boris, he's all in. He's all in, baby. Sugar's maybe a little bit more apprehensive. Probably because in this cult, like, the women have to be maids. But Boris is all in. Hexing seemed to be working for Bronco. Now with over 200 devout followers, he was now raking in a ton of cash and building quite an empire. Pretty good for a hustler from Oakland. One of the central tenets of the Morehouse is responsible hedonism, which is described as, We at Morehouse believe that every day is Sunday. We believe that we are on earth to have a good time and devote ourselves to pleasure. Is that what Sunday is? Is Sunday the, the pleasure day? Yeah, I don't, that's not Sunday. Sunday is like the fucking Sabbath or whatever. Sunday is the day that you tell yourself you're going to relax and then spent it existentially racked with anxiety because you have to go back to work on Monday. That was Ken Brown, Morehouse Institute president, 1971. A man who fundamentally doesn't understand what Sundays are. They say at the Morehouse that they teach service in the kitchen, the living room, and the bedroom. They devote their lives to pleasure and strive for a perfect life, which Victor promises them they can obtain by using his programs. Three hours of sex per day may sound exhausting, but to the Morehouse residents, this is a daily practice. See, I t- uh, Boris is fucking on board with that. I Sugar, she's she's having some misgivings, but Boris, he would he could he would die. He could die in the Morehouse. You'd be fine. Ken Brown started at the institute as a school teacher, and within a year and a half became quote priest, which is what they call their teachers. He is also the institute's treasurer and president. 
In an interview with Rolling Stone, he became a little too comfortable with the journalist, telling him that the Institute was, quote, a good scam and, quote, it's up to them whether or not they feel victimized or not. To live near him is an honor. He's the highest being I've ever met. That's actually fascinating, though, that you would like, you can see the grift. You know the grift is happening, but the way it manifests in your psyche isn't, oh my God, this person is ripping people off. This is wrong. It's to ascribe religious awe to an underhanded mechanism of capitalism. I mean, that's that's like fucking Andrew Tate. That's just like what's happening with Andrew Tate right now. There, there's like, there was a video floating around on Twitter where it was kind of like, it was showing two different interviews with Andrew Tate, one from 2018 and one from 2020 or 2021, I think. And basically it was talking about how he like totally just rebranded himself and, you know, to try to like skirt controversy. And so he used to run like, he was basically like a, a digital pimp. He just ran like a network of OnlyFans um, where like they would get like cam models and they would like shoot videos or they would just like sit on live streams. And then like he's bragging about it and basically talking about this whole grift that he had set up where he's like, you know, we had the girls on the camera just pretending like they were typing. And then we were just off camera, just like talking to these guys. And these girls were like available 24 seven. So, you know, you could talk to them anytime because it was me or my brother or this person. And we were the ones that were talking to you. And he was bragging about like like swindling dudes and talking about how like all these poor lonely guys that thought these girls were going to like meet them and all this stuff. And they were just like milking them for cash. And he was bragging about how he made like a million dollars from one of these guys or whatever. And then it cut and it's an intercut with this more recent 2021 interview from his like more recent version of himself where he's like this advocate for like men and like men's, struggles and things like that. And he's basically like in an interview talking about how men are exploited and like taken, you know, in the world, like from the porno industry, men are like, you know, milked of their cash and, you know, tricked into thinking that they're going to get with these women. Like he's basically describing what he was bragging about, but saying that it was like the evils of the world and the horrible, like elite group of like porno people or whatever that like, exploit men or whatever. And it was like cutting back and forth between them to show that he was just like literally, he's literally just completely changed his entire story and rebranded himself as some kind of like men's rights advocate. Um, and he preaches against the things that he did himself personally in just, just a few years ago. And, uh, that was posted. And if you look in the comments, it's all, it's like thousands of comments of people being like, eh, it was, you know, it was there. It was those guys fault for, you know, doing it like he was just that was just a good hustle. Like he, you know, he they were like and they're like, congratulations, Andrew. Like, you know, you did you you made all this money and like it's not your fault. You're not a bad person because these people like bought into this bullshit or whatever. Even in the face of showing the hypocrisy, everyone's like patting him on the back of like, you know, you just you're just a hustler. Like you just you just made you figured out a way to make money. It's not your fault that these guys are idiots. Hustlers University, baby. Which is like bullshit in the first place, but especially whenever it's compa- it's show like literally shown him saying that it's evil when people do that, and then also he was doing it, and then people are still like they don't get it, and they're still being like you're a fucking hustler, and like they want to be like him, but simultaneously like playing the victim complex that they're they're like exploited by women and the porn industry and all this stuff. It's just it's insane. It's like. It's a level of mental gymnastics that boggles the mind. Ken isn't the only one who speaks this way of Victor Barranco. Pretty much all of the Morehouse community talks of him like some otherworldly being. Victor himself in the interview with Rolling Stone was quoted saying that the whole thing was simply show business and that what people really buy is the chance to relate to him. In the Morehouse documentary, you do start to get the feeling that there's a little discourse between some of the houses. A few living in the San Francisco Morehouse stated that once they left the Lafayette Morehouse, they could have a much more normal lifestyle. Denise said she couldn't make a living at the Lafayette house, nor could one of the other couples in the documentary. When they were living there, they were only allowed to do more house activities and were only allowed to interact with other people from inside the community. They always had to go places in pairs, even to the grocery store. You know, and there were rules, you know, how you're supposed to manicure your nails and, you know, all this stuff. Even when we left Lafayette and moved here, um, at that point, we sort of, we still lived in this house, but we sort of stopped living, fully living that lifestyle. We, my husband went and got a, a real job and 
I started taking care of our son sort of full time. There's something about the intensity in other places I've been. I spent two weeks once at Lafayette and it bugged me. <laughs> I spent all my time uh, either at the community or if I left, I left with somebody else from there. And where I went most of the time was to something that was even a part of our lifestyle. If I went, I, might, I went to collect food for the charity or give away food. Uh, I might have gone to the dump to dump our garbage <laughs> to the Richmond dump. That's an interesting experience. <laughs> and um, or we went to our mark groups, and then you know I was still meeting people from the outside world, but it was people who were there to hear about the or participate with the more activities. And uh, you know I rarely actually did much else for a long time. Um, I was done with Lafayette. Um, I had a good time, but the lifestyle no longer suited my um, needs or my goals. Most people who live there are lifers and they make their living off of courses and houses. And um, as someone who needed to make a living, I had responsibilities within the community which really prohibited, um, it got in the way of me having an outside job and they really did like sort of frowned upon that anyway. So it didn't make economic sense for me to stay there. I really like living here because it's more of a blend of society in general and some of the, and the principles and philosophy um, of Morehouse. So it suits me better. What I see is the most important reason. The thing that strikes me is just like, and these are people that are still in this. So this is, these aren't even like ex-cult members. They're just people that like moved to a slightly less strict house of the cult or whatever. Like they moved, they, they went from Slytherin to Gryffindor, but like the sheer, just like waste of like years of your life. Like when, like when you come, come out of a cult or whatever, and you're just like, man, like, I just like, I just like wasted five years doing nothing. Like that's gotta suck. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think for some people that's a real culture shock when they come out. And then for some people, you know, they, they kind of don't, even when they get out, they don't get out. You know, they're still kind of living under the, the mental strictures of the environment, you know, because they are so thoroughly reprogrammed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people who get out of who like spent like a large majority of their lives in jail and they get out and they just don't know how to function in a normal society. And then they end they they end up going back to jail because they're just like, I don't I don't know how to live in a re regular world. On the Lafayette Morehouse website, there are numerous interviews you can dig through. One such interview is with Dr. Cynthia Barranco, Vic's second wife and a teacher still to this day at the Morehouse. She tells her story of how she found the community and how she met Victor. Again, this is on the official Lafayette Morehouse website. Oh boy. Cindy was just 16 years old in 1970 when she took her first course, Basic Sensuality. She had moved to California with her friend Diana, also 16 and her mother into one of the Morehouses in Boyle Heights. Though the night they moved in, Victor pulled his support from the house because he thought the owners weren't treating the tenants well enough. She ended up hooking up with a man named Anthony and started a relationship. She cut herself off from her parents completely, so then had to come up with her own residency funds. We would make deals, like being part-time slaves, and we were treated in ways I didn't like. Finally, they moved to the Venice Morehouse, where she started taking more classes. She's still only 17 years old at this point. By this time, she's met Vic quite a few times. She's totally captivated by him. She signs up for the Shazam course that she totally can't afford and will lose her job if she takes it. But she says, I went to Shazam because there was something wrong with my crotch and I couldn't tell what it was. When I told Vic about my symptoms, he said I had a yeast infection and I needed to get done more often by my partner, at least three times a day. It was the most humiliating thing that had happened to me in my life up until that point. I didn't want to have my business talked about like that. My crotch being messed up is what motivated me. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. Holy shit! And, and keep in mind, that is on the website. This is being presented as like a good thing? I, honestly, I don't know what the moral of this text blurb is. It's just a weird rambling anecdote about, about how she joined the Morehouse. In 1976, Vic had decided it was time to bring his show to the masses and hold a public demonstration, which would become quite notorious. The event was open to the public, but took place in one of the more remote Northern California locations. During the demonstration, one of Vic's bright young students, Diana, would lay on a gynecological table and be, quote, pleasured for three hours. 
We spoke of Diana briefly before, which was the same girl, Victor's second wife, Cindy's best friend, who also came to the Moore house when she was just 16 years old. She's 22 now, and Victor is 39. As much as one wants to believe in sexual awakenings and self-discovery, he was bringing in lots of very young, very impressionable young women. Here is a quote directly from Diana about the demonstration. No, there wasn't a course written up or anything like that. It was just him showing the coming, having me come. It was for three hours. It's a long time to just lie there and get off. We had cigarette breaks. He told people that he was going to have Brian bring me down in a limousine on the way home. He actually told them at what point I would be done. At one point, I'd stop needing to come down anymore and I'd be done. So Brian did me for a while. And when I sat up in the limousine, there was the sign of the place where Vic said I would be done. So Brian did me for a while. And when I sat up in the limousine, there was the sign of the place where Vic said I would be done. Does that mean that like, he like accurately predicted like the amount, like the, the mile markers at which she would come? Like he was like, he'll she'll come on the corner of 37th and Swan. I don't know, but that's what I'm going with. That's that's my head cannon for this. He was just predicting. I mean, I'm I'm impressed by that. If that's if that's true, I'm impressed by that. I think it's also very interesting that he's like, yeah, sexual liberation. We're gonna like do it for three hours, and then like after 15 minutes, he's like, okay, I'm done. Brian, you're tapping in, buddy. It's you. <laughs> I'm bringing in a pinch hitter. It's like in in theory this sounds like the greatest fucking thing you could ever think of in actual execution i am exhausted i've had a really rough night i don't really want to do this anymore brian brian come in here he's just like from long island now <laughs> yeah i don't know why he's from san francisco he's a literal like mobster from san francisco i don't know why that sounds like a dude from long island to me she also recalls how after, quote, the coming, how everyone on the property was so turned on, they would run to every available corner of the property so that they could get off too. She says it was about the women, but she was sure that everyone was going to have, quote, great sex that night. That's how well Vic knew me and women. He would do me for a while and then he would back off. He was just really good at it. Again, brainwashed cult logic. This guy just can't, he can't do it. He can't maintain three hours because that's an insanely long time. But he's just like Svengali'd everyone into being, yeah, that three minutes, that was like three hours. He's like, listen, listen, here's the thing. I know I said that you had to have, we had to have sex for three hours a day. And I know that like every time I start to do it after like a minute and a half, I just, I'm done. But the thing is, is that I'm actually setting you up for greater pleasure. Like my little minute and a half, that's me, that's my charity. That's me, that's me giving, you know, because I could go the full three hours. If I wanted to be selfish and greedy, I go the full three hours, I'd get, I'd give the whole thing myself, but I'm trying to pass it on. I'm trying to, you know, that, that, you know, that movie from the late nineties with the sixth sense kid, pay it forward. And you know how like that became a trend at like Starbucks when you're in the drive through and you like pay for the person behind you and then they're supposed to do that to them. And it's actually really annoying for the workers because they get confused about like how to attribute the tickets and stuff. And they tell people to not do that. And it's kind of dumb anyway because it's like you're just paying for somebody else's instead of your own. So it doesn't really change anything. It's not really actually charity or nice. It's just a weird gimmick. I'm doing that. I'm paying forward to the next guy who's going to give the pleasure because I am selfless and I care about people. That's why I can only last for 30 seconds. Good for you, Vic. Good for you, man. She also refers to her past and before she met Victor and how she had troubles with her orgasms. The reason I kept thinking I wasn't coming was because I had the idea of what it was supposed to look like, and it didn't look like that. So Vic just wore those viewpoints down little by little. I had it ingrained in me very heavily, so it took a while. I didn't just get off right away because it was Vic doing me. It was my mind that he had to change. I think that he saw that it was a process and that some people are going to hold on to longer than others. I think that Susie had to go through the same thing to figure it out, and I think he figured it out with her. He was so good with women, he could feel them. I think he could feel that they were getting off, and it wasn't like they were admitting it right away. He and Susie didn't have enough reality between them, so they wanted to see what it looked like with other people, and with their exploratory process, it came down to bringing somebody else through. So, uh, there's a lot of sad stuff in there, but also, it, man, that's just... There's a lot of sad stuff in there. 
Um, yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, number one, it's like every time we ever do these cult episodes, it's just like waiting for the other shoe to drop of like, when's this going to be about how this dude is just trying to get sex from possibly underage women? <laughs> that's that's the one thing that comes to mind. Because there was a little bit of time. I mean, there was the whole like have three hours of sex thing. But in most of this discussion so far, it seemed like this wasn't going in like a sex way. But I was like, when's it when's it going to happen? And it's like, oh, like, you know, public exhibitionist style uh, fucking Howard Stern, you know, women sitting on the Sibian style, just public sex acts. Like what? What is this? Isn't this isn't like a spiritual thing? This is just like fucking in front of people. But also, yes, it's like somebody going out of their way to like rationalize that it's like okay that he was like fucking other women that weren't his wife and also like trying to rational like yeah what do, what do you think about it i think in a different context the idea that sexuality is more of a mental thing than just physical stimulation is interesting and i think that that's a vista of experience that uh, is worthy of discussion and anal analysis and i think that that's something that a lot of people experience however in this context it just sounds like this person's fucking brainwashed and was sexually manipulated a hundred percent yeah yeah which yeah which is just which is just sad because you know you have clearly a, a woman who's describing that she has like these sexual hang-ups or frustrations or mental blocks or what i whatever you call that I, I don't know what the proper terminology is but this idea that she like was in was unable to or it was difficult for her to have an orgasm and she apparently struggled with this for a long time. Or maybe she didn't. I don't know how old this girl was. Maybe she was 15 and this is like disgusting. Um, it didn't it didn't specify how old she was. Uh, but then like to have that manipulated and exploited by a dude who just like is a fucking pervert who just wants to like women in public and just make and like put it under the auspices of I'm, I'm like giving you like sexual therapy to overcome your issues. That's just really fucked up because that's not like and not, not that this is good, not that it's ever good to like uh, bring like these young women into these cults, these like sex cults and like brainwash them and all this stuff. But like at least like in a lot of cult situations, it's like people who are seeking like, you know, the Dom and her cult. It was a lot of people who were just like seeking out weird, unique experiences, you know? It was just like clearly affluent people who were just bored with their lives and just like wanted to do something weird and unique. And then I still don't think it's right or good to manipulate them into coming into a cult or whatever. But it's at least it's like, oh, it's just like some super bored rich person who just like wants to do weird shit and like it's unfortunate that they fell into this cult, but at the certain, at a, to a certain degree, it's like maybe you should do a little bit more intellectual due diligence. But this is just like some young person who's just like struggling with some like trauma and then is like just manipulated into thinking that she's being helped by some fucking meatball. Yeah, by Ron Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, the spiritual guru that is Ron fucking Jeremy. Yeah, it's 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 sad. But also speaking of uh, speaking of. Uh, sexuality uh, of the mind. Uh, a, a friend of the podcast, uh, Kirk Pinchon, who you might know as Dad Beats, he he makes some of the music for the show. Kirk Pinchon, which, by the way, as a total side note. Oh my God, you were getting a side note in a side note? Come on, one star, one star. Just spit out the fucking fact. What are you trying to say side about Side note Kirk? and a side note. People were talking about uh, Thomas Pinchon in the Facebook group a couple days ago. And uh, Kirk is actually Thomas Pinchon's cousin. Uh, but uh, he told me this story years ago that he has a friend who can just lay down and close his eyes and jizz. <laughs> that is not where I thought that was going. <laughs> <laughs> that is <laughs> that is insane not only is that insane to that, that can happen but it's just insane that you would bring that up that's just so you were talking, you were talking about like the sexuality of the mind and it being a mental thing and i and 
he he told me that he his friend said that he can just like he can just lay down and just make it happen without touching himself. Like no erection or anything. He just sits there and it just fucking comes. We got to introduce him to the Kleps, bro. Yeah. He's the secret weapon. God, Mr. and Mrs. Klepp, I think they found their new uh, their new boy toy. Come on command. You thought crying on command was an impressive skill. Dude, that's like, uh, that's some fucking the shadow shit, you know? You go to some Shaolin temple or Tibetan temple, learn the secrets of the mind, come back. You don't. You don't fight, you know, rum runners in 1920 with the ability to turn invisible. You just lay down and then jizz. <laughs> what cum lurks in the dicks of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> this is, that is a joke aimed at precisely zero people other than me. <laughs> I love the shadow, obviously, but that joke is so funny to me. <laughs> it's so stupid. Hey, look at that. Look at that. Spandrew is holding a definitely not bootleg shadow here that did I I did I get you that or did I I think there was some kind of animal that came into our garage when we were gone because when I got back there was like some stuff on my desk that was kind of like knocked over and this shadow was sitting on my desk and he had both of his guns and he had his arms up like this and his cape on but when i got back he was he was knocked over and i don't know where the i don't know where the gun or the cape are they're like gone i think there was like an i think there was like a, an animal in here like a rat or something it was just me i got in there and just stole the cape i was like i need this i need i lost mine and then you knocked a few other things over you're like better make it look like an animal who knows what come lurks in the dicks of men <laughs> Diana is still with the Morehouse community to this very day, teaching her own classes in, quote, sensuality and expansion of sexual potential qualification and certification. From 1977 to 1997, Lafayette Morehouse operated Moore University, a post-secondary school that offers BAs and MAs in humanities as well as PhDs in sensuality and lifestyles. Dang, I went the wrong way. I should have gotten a PhD in sensuality. Dude, I'm trying to get a PhD in lifestyles. Yeah, what is, what even Can is I that? Can I get a PhD in lifestyles of the rich and the famous? Yeah, just that song, just a PhD in that specific song. You break down just a whole world philosophy of surrounding the lyrics to to that song by Good Charlotte. While the school was authorized by the state of California to give out these degrees, that changed in 1989 when the California Bureau for Privacy, Post-Secondary and Vocational Education staged a crackdown on non-accredited schools. This quickly led to Morehouse shutting down their degree program. A lot of these people that were teaching these courses were not academics of any kind and had just been trained by Vic or other students that had passed this quote certification. But man, what that, that those were the those were the days before they like cuz right like now like I mean there are like bullshit schools still but like the accreditation system is like pretty strict and it's very well advertised if a school is accredited or not. So you kind of know if you're going to a real school where the degree means something or if you're going to some weird bullshit Phoenix University shit uh, or University of Phoenix or whatever it is um, that's like not fully legit. But like back in the day before they cracked down on that, like you could just like start a school and just be like, we're get, we're, we're giving PhDs. You take a three month course on boners and you can have a PhD. I mean – Maybe that's how that guy learned how to just come on command. Yeah, he went to the Morehouse University and took coming on command 101. That's what that's what the basics of sensuality and sexuality is. It's learning hands-free self-determination. AKA jizzing your pants. Victor Barranco died at 68 years old in 2002. There was a small obituary written for him in the Honolulu Star Bulletin. There were no services posted. The Lafayette Morehouse continued on after Bronco's death and is still operating today. Many other branches of the houses split off to form their own communities as well. Class prices range from $425 to $8,500. What are the $8,500 classes? That's 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 got that's got to be the coming on command class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't get that for $425. That's the like hands-free making somebody else jizz their pants. Psychic labial manipulation. Is the class that's $8,500, bitch. Psychic labial manipulation. So essentially, you know, this this kind of weird cult that's about like the principles. Of, it's supposed to be about the principles of free love and 
enjoyment. It's it's not un it's not dissimilar to Dom and Her in that there wasn't really anything totally off like Om Shinrikyo level awful about it where people were like murdered or anything like that. But it's almost kind of creepier in a way that an organization like this that is like ostensibly about free love, but it's really about built around like the subservience of women has just like existed and just it's been around for 50 years and it's just still like a thing. This is, We're not talking about some cult that was like around in the 70s and then like disbanded because some, you know, police raid in the 80s or something like that. Like this is just a currently functioning organization that's like a modern day handmaid's tale, essentially. Um, but I, I think the the more striking thing to me about it is the way that it's built off of this idea of exploiting basically homeless people. The, 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 the whole, the honeypot of the Morehouse is offering these like, houses where you can it's like a homeless shelter where you can go live and it's like it's better than a homeless shelter from a from an amenities standpoint because it has more dignity than being living in a homeless shelter because it's not a homeless shelter it's not branded as a place to go live if you're homeless it's like a place it's it's branded as like a community to go live in if you're like a hippie person but it's really a homeless shelter and then there's there's better amenities because it's more of like a it's basically more like an apartment building, like a communal living apartment building, not like a homeless shelter where you kind of just like hang out in stalls and sleep on cots and things like that. So it's all much more enticing than the idea of having to go and like stay at a homeless shelter. And then also there's the community aspect of it. And then they basically from there take you and turn you into like a free worker. Which is, I think that's the insidious, the really insidious part about it to me is it's essentially like farming young homeless people and turning them into wage slaves. But then it gets even weirder, right? Because it's now it's like, okay, wage slave. But then at a certain point it transitions into, and now you pay me to gain knowledge of hexing and sensuality. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just like a, it's a pipeline to turn homeless people into workers and also like a profit, like a profit source, customers for a weird MLM. Yeah, the ultimate MLM, except it's not even really like, it's not even really a multi-level, it's just one level. It's just a one level marketing campaign. Give me money for to, to go to these classes where we just, where Sugar and Boris just riff, just like Second City Rejects riffing, and then just like have sex three hours a day, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, my favorite part of this is still just uh, Victor's tracksuits. Like those things are amazing, man. I mean, everything I just, all, everything I just said aside, I'm I'm joining those 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 tracksuits, dude. Let's just show up in matching tracksuits. On that note, I'm Dave Baker. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to uh, find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or you can get my comics like uh, fucking Everyone Is Tulip, Halloween Boy, uh, Night Hunters. And um, if you want to pre-order some stuff, you can pre-order my new book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, out from Top Shelf, February 13th, 2024, which is open for pre-orders right now on both Golden Apple's website, goldenapplecomics.com, or Halloween, or uh, I almost said a Halloween boy, or Amazon. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's going to be almost a 300-page book. And uh, it's comics, prose, time travel, end of the world, shenanigans. Pretty excited about it. Mary Tyler Moorhawk. Spanji, where can people find you on the internet? And nobody has sex for three hours to try to fix their crotch issues. First and foremost, that's that's the most important detail about the book. Um, you can find me living it up at the Lafayette Morehouse. Just fucking going to town on some yeast infections. God, <laughs> Jesus. Christ. Jesus. Oh, that's, that's a horrible, disgusting image. Uh, you can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. But if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, dapricerights.com, and get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also follow us on social media. Go to Facebook, search for Deep Cuts Podcast, or join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, and talk about other stuff. 
you can, you can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can go to our website, deepcutspod.com, and get some merch, some cool shirts and hats and T-shirts. Shirts and T-shirts, those are different things, of course, uh, with Deep Cuts graphics on them. And uh, you can join the Mystery Treehouse uh, the, the, the mystery tree house cult where it's basically just like, you just do our chores. Our house is like really messy right now. We just need someone to like do the dishes. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. This episode of Deep Cuts was written by special guest writer Jessica Balboni. If you'd be interested in writing an episode of the show, please email andrew at boygeniusmedia.com.